Hello and welcome to the Partners for Access Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. I'm your host Aparna Krishnan. Every week we at Partners for Access bring to you the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean for you. In a two-part special series, the weekly roundup team went to meet patients, payers and pharma companies at the World Orphan Drug Congress in Barcelona. This week, we spoke to a Porfiria patient about her advocacy efforts, a company that offers a unique service for patients attending clinical trials, and a very special interview with Dr. Seguline Aime, founder of the Orphanet. We start with Dr. Jasmine Barman Axogen, who will take us through her journey of getting Porfiria patients access to a new treatment. Hello, my name is Jasmine Barman Axogen. I'm a molecular biologist in the field of porphyrias, in particular the erythropoietic protoporphyria, which is a very rare condition. It only affects around 400 people in the UK. and. Um, I am not only a scientist, but I'm also a patient myself. So I was the first patient ever to be allowed to talk to the entire committee at the European Medicines Agency when they approved the drug, uh, which is uh, helping in our condition, afamilanotide. And um, so that was in 2014. And we thought this is now the solution for our condition. But uh, in the end, it turned out that we had to struggle in every single EU country to gain access. So this is why we founded the International Purpuria Patient Network, which I'm uh, the vice president of. And we're trying to uh, enable access to all the European sufferers. So at the moment, we succeeded in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Italy and partly also in Switzerland, but currently we are asking NICE also to enable access to the UK sufferers. So in erythropoietic protoporphyria, this is a very rare condition of the heme biosynthesis, the red blood dye. So basically a precursor of the red blood dye accumulates in the blood vessels and this precursor, the protoporphyrin, reacts with the visible light range. So that means that uh, patients, the, the moment they go out into sunlight or even they are exposed to artificial light sources, they can have severe painful burning inside of their blood vessels. So since childhood, patients with erythropoietic protoporphyria have to avoid all the light exposure as best as possible, which is not always possible, obviously. So it's an ultra-rare condition, it's only one person in 150,000 affected and uh, this means that around 400 people in the UK are suffering from this condition. So from that conference I hope to raise awareness for our condition because it's um, underdiagnosed, people don't know it. Mm -hmm. But in particular I hope that uh, I can meet with people from NICE because uh, the International Porphyria Patient Network, I am a member of. Uh, we are formal stakeholders at the NICE approval process for Alpha Melanotide. And uh, they didn't um, accept that, that, um, that um, application, 
but that it's not um, enough value for money. But we think that uh, being able to be in the sunlight with this truck, without this horrible burns and painful yeah, consequences, it, it really changes the life of people, including myself. Uh, I have the treatment since 2012, and I now have a nearly normal life. And I wish that for all the UK sufferers, and I hope that NICE will change its mind. Now to Helen Springford and Illingworth Research that specializes in nursing services that enable clinical trial into a setting which is more comfortable and convenient for the patient. Hello, my name is Helen Springford. I'm Vice President of Strategic Development at Illingworth Research Group. Illingworth Research Group is a company, um, predominantly CRO, but we have two niche services. We have medical photography for clinical trials, so anywhere where there's an imaging endpoint. Um, but more importantly, on the rare disease side, the research nursing. So we provide research, experienced GCP research nurses for clinical trials that go into the patient's home or workplace, making life um, for trial subjects a lot easier. Um, especially in the rare disease space, these patients, subjects, um, face numerous challenges. Typically, it also involves the whole family. We work in paediatrics as well as adults, especially in the paediatric area. Um, you've got siblings, you've got parents, and very often, if they're in a clinical trial that requires and demands a lot of time at clinic, it means that um, children don't go to school, parents lose work, um, siblings are inconvenienced. And um, what we've done, and we've got many examples of this, is um, we had a study in Duchenne muscular dystrophy where the patient actually lived in the Isle of Man and had to go to Great Ormond Street in London to, to every week for his visits. And it meant that there was a 14 or 18 hour round trip every week. It was one and a half days out of the family's time, which is a huge commitment. Um, what they did is they noticed that there was 50% dropout in, this, in the trial that they couldn't afford to lose patients. So they amended the protocol so that they built in Ealingworth Research and our off-site nursing. Um, and after two years of using the service, our nurse went to the patient's home. Um, three out of the four visits were done in the patient's home. So they only had to go to hospital once a month. And after two years, there was zero dropout. So a really good example. Um, we have another study in the same indication at the moment where we have a patient who's seen in Canada but actually lives in Iceland. So we placed, we had a nurse that lives literally just around the corner from the patient in Iceland and they have their visits done at home. Um, we work in all sorts of different rare disease types, um, as I said, paediatrics and adults. Um, so the challenges are they're often not very well. There's massive inconvenience for them and stress especially if you're looking at even elderly patients as well that potentially are not very mobile. So I think the patient centricity side of our business works very well. My background, I've been in clinical research now for 27 years, but my background is nursing. Um, and our director of research nursing, Juliet Hulse, is also a nurse. And, and I think that this patient-centric approach really works very well. It resonates with nurses. Um, and we work a lot. Again, we, we try and support patient associations. Um, we have our research nurse teddy bears that we give away, and we also give those away to the uh, Children's Hospital in Birmingham for their Christmas parties um, and things like that. So we try and get involved um, as much as we possibly can to make life's, life of the patient and the, and the family a lot easier.
the good news is that the the you know the terminology patient centricity has really been banded around a lot now but i think that biotechs and pharma companies historically didn't didn't even think of doing visits in the home but more often than not now they are coming to us before the protocols finished to say which visits would lend themselves well to be done in the patient's home. Of course, we can't do all visits in the home. If they need an MRI or a biopsy, those still have to be done in the clinic. But there's an awful lot of clinical trial visits are fairly routine. Um, and our nurses are very well trained, so they can give all manner of IMP in the home. Uh, we work with couriers, lots of blood sampling and so on. So they tend to come to us um, earlier than they used to. Um, typically before it was protocol amendment, it was like a necessity if they were losing patients. It was almost like an emergency backup plan. Um, but they do build that into the studies now, especially if in rare disease um, areas where there is potentially a limited pool of patients and quite a number of studies it's really better for sponsors if they can make their their study as convenient as possible so the patients are more likely to go into their study than the next one. Dr. Segalen Eme has spent four decades in the scientific community and particularly in rare diseases. She is the founder of Orphanet and heads expert committees on rare diseases at the European Union and the World Health Organization. At the WDC Europe, Partners for Access Managing Partner Sophie Schmitz sat down with Dr. Ime to discuss current challenges in rare diseases and what the future holds. We are at the World Orphan Drug Congress in Barcelona and I'm joined by Seglin Ime. Seglin, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in rare disease. Oh, I started in the 70s <laughs> uh, as a medical geneticist. So I was facing families with uh, small children with terrible diseases and I couldn't stand that, you know, because I had beautiful children myself and, you know, it was so unfair. So I decided that uh, something had to be done. Uh, and I built at that time a, a computer system for the diagnosis of rare diseases. I was the only one interested. <laughs> But in fact, through that, I made a lot of diagnosis of very rare conditions. So I became a famous clinician and then I received a lot of cases from all over the world and so on. So this was the, the beginning of a long story, which became Orphanet, which is uh, the website where you can find the inventory of rare diseases and a lot of information. In addition to that, because I had data, I could uh, built uh, um, a policy to ensure that um, research would be adapted uh, to uh, the fact that there were very few patients and also that healthcare meet the needs of these patients which are very special. So in France with other stakeholders I imagine the first national plan which was also uh, the inspiration for a European policy. So I chaired the task force at the European level, then the EU Committee of Experts on Rare Diseases, and then I was in charge of the Secretariat of the International Consortium for Research into Rare Diseases. So have been very uh, gifted because in the course of my life, I saw a field which was totally ignored and who is now mainstream. Yeah, the transformation has been quite in intense. Uh, unbelievable. So as, as part of your, your important role in rare diseases, you have been involved in a, a recent project by OECD looking at uh, affordability and sustainability of some of the medicines in healthcare. Can you tell us a bit about that, that project? Sure. So the 
OECD consultation, it was a consultation of stakeholders, uh, was uh, focusing on the fact that currently some prices um, um, linked to innovative uh, medicines are at a level of price which is unusual and which is uh, shocking for politicians who do not understand fully how this is constructed and uh, they, they feared that uh, it could be a major issue soon due to the fact that uh, science is uh, blooming and that we have now uh, technologies uh, which allowed uh, extraordinary progresses but uh, for politicians it is uh, unbearable not to be able to provide to citizens something which would be uh, success, su successful and useful, um, but they have constraints and so they wanted the OECD to imagine uh, the solutions to prevent a clash between this blooming of uh, new um, products and uh, the, the budget constraints uh, that they, all, they are all facing. Yeah. So the facts uh, are quite clear. I mean, we have really two divergent trends. On one hand, you have healthcare expenditure, which are increasing uh, more quickly than the uh, GDP in, in, in all countries. So this gap is really a real worry. It's not an invention by politicians. It's a real worry. And on the other hand, the number of uh, products in development has never been uh, uh, as impressive as now. I mean, it, it, we know exactly, because we know the failure rate, we know that uh, we are going to have on the market in the coming years a lot of products very well, uh, I mean, designed and which uh, will uh, really maybe not cure, but treat well, you know, patients with severe conditions. So, so the OECD, based on that, said, well, we have to find a solution. And in the current system, this solution is not uh, easy to foresee. So what can we do? We have to imagine all the possible solutions. And it's why they have asked industry, patient organization, uh, academics, um, regulators, payers, and governments to um, come and discuss honestly their analysis, but also their, their solutions. And in that exercise, uh, um, I cannot uh, tell you what industry replied because I was not at the meeting uh, with industry because I'm an academic, so I can only tell you what happened in, in, my, um, uh, in the course of the consultation with academics. But I know also what the patient said. And finally, uh, we agreed that there was a long list of possibilities to improve the system. Uh, and these possibilities include, of first, a change in the habits of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, which is quite um, uh, close to discussion. I mean, they really hide uh, uh, the, the part of investment uh, they are making on specific products, saying that it's a continuum and was, they, they pay the losses for one product with the... <laughs> Uh, the gain with another, but th that's not receivable because um, a lot of other industry sectors 
have also losses, uh, have a lot of investment, uh, infrastructures and so on, and they are able to analyze clearly where they put the, their money and where uh, are the problems. So it's a false defense from industry, and it was not that much of a problem in the past when we were able to pay for all these new products. But now that we have tensions, uh, it's not acceptable as a discourse, you know. So the first thing that OECD identified when we, we were discussing was the fact that everybody is asking for transparency. What does that mean? It means that we are willing to pay for high-priced uh, products uh, if we understand that uh, you know, the the cost of development, that the cost of production, that the cost of marketing um, is high because there are very few patients, because it's difficult and everyone can accept that. But we, we want to be convinced that we pay for real um, products with investment uh, demonstrated by data. And also we, we, we want to pay for value now. Um, put, put our energy in, in producing the evidence that these drugs are providing the benefit for which we pay. And the technology is there now to collect data, you know. Uh, in, in the past, it was very difficult, I agree, huh? I remember. But now uh, it's quite easy to even uh, give the patients uh, devices to say about their health status, you know, at any moment. We can uh, also extract data from the healthcare system. We, we, in some countries, we have excellent data sets coming from the general population. So we, we have the instruments uh, to um, generate the evidence which is necessary to demonstrate that when we pay high prices, it's justified both by the investments and by the difficulties of the, of the distribution but also based on the gain uh, for the patients and also the gain for the society because by treating well patients uh, with a very severe disease, usually you, uh, you don't pay for uh, other expenses in the healthcare system. And, and this is, uh, I think, something which has been ignored in the past because we, we had uh, no reason to really look in details at the situation. So, Transparency is, a, is a, the first thing that we want, especially in the construction of the price, you know. So it sounds as if there are a lot of, of, of good recommendations that have been made and also as well, I mean, the technological advancements in therapies, in products have really improved, but it sounds as if the advancements in the way that evidence is collected has some gaps and, and needs some improvement. Is that fair, would you say? Uh, that's exactly what I think. And I, I think that uh, it comes from a lack of uh, collaboration mm -hmm. between uh, the HT agencies, the researchers, the clinicians, the patient organizations, and pharma industry. And this is solvable. Um, I'm uh, fond of uh, uh, data registration databases. And honestly, uh, it takes uh, uh, time. It's time-consuming. Uh, it's expensive. It, it requires expertise. And this is a resource uh, which can be shared by a lot of people for 
various users. And there is no reason not to do that together because yeah. it's purely an infrastructure and nothing else, you know. And after that, everyone will uh, do the analysis <laughs> they want. I mean, that's okay, but the infrastructure should be shared. And why don't we uh, invent a pot, a budget pot, where, where the money is, uh, it can be at national level, you know, where, peop um, let's say, people running databases can apply to be supported and then we uh, it's just a matter of governance data is data but you know the intellectual property comes with the analysis of the data it's not come not up with the data but this uh, would be easy to overcome I think you know if uh, we were putting money on the table because <laughs> with that you can convince easily um, the different you know stakeholders to to uh, share the workload, the budget, and so on. So this is one of the, the things which would totally transform the relationship between people because the payers would have the evidence. Industry also would be pleased to show that their products work. And they currently they have a lot of, uh, let's say, obligations, regulatory obligations, which are extremely difficult to fulfill. And this is adding to the cost of, uh, of, of, of their business. So I think that it's, it is so much in the best interest of all stakeholders that I'm surprised that this is not done. So I think someone has to, to take the lead, you know, somewhere. The EFPIA or Europa Bio things, they should push in that direction because it's really in the best interest of everyone. Yes, and that, and that really leads me to my next question. So completely understand that collaboration is an essential component yeah. if, if we're going to be successful here um, for all stakeholders. Who do you believe is best placed to lead this? Because it does need some kind of champion to move this yeah. forward. Uh, I mean, the European Commission, we are in Europe, huh? and I'm a... a a, a great supporter of uh, European Union uh, initiatives. So I think the IMI uh, pro pro project, for instance, would be a very good um, uh, framework for, for that. They, they should identify, you know, a theme, let's say, um, agreeable to everyone, but like, you know, building a, a, a accessible uh, data repositories um, shared by and governed by, you know, I would like very much that it's on not only on, between the patient organizations, academics, and industry, but also involving the HT agencies, the payers, because if uh, they are not involved in the process, they will not use the resource. You know, they have to be involved totally from the beginning. Seglina May, it's been an honor and an absolute pleasure to have you as the guest speaker on our podcast. Thank you very much. And finally, a chat with the organizers of the World Often Drug Congress. So, Andrew, we're here at the World Often Drug Congress 2018 in Barcelona. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, I work with Terrapin as the uh, yeah, business development manager for the, uh, for the event, for the World Open Drug Congress. So um, I work with people who are looking to sort of be involved in the event from a commercial aspect, people who are looking to really gain visibility and show people what their company do, um, people who are looking to exhibit at the event, people who are looking to speak at the meeting to, to really sort of increase their thought leadership and expertise um, and make people aware of, of who they are so they can build partnerships uh, within the Orphan Drugs. Excellent. Thanks very much. And 
tell us a bit about the orphan drug conference itself because there are so many rare disease meetings at the moment what makes the world orphan drug congress special well i mean this event has been running for nine years now so it predates a lot of the other events in the industry uh, which meant we were able to sort of you know get a head start and be able to sort of um you know get get the right people involved early and and you know increase our message uh, it's a very commercially focused event largely we still have a lot of patient groups attending the meeting and that's something that's expanded uh, but it's a commercially focused meeting bringing together people from lots of different areas like clinical development pricing market access uh, cell and gene therapy um, and sort of new areas all the time things like precision medicine coming into the event as well so it's um, really the largest orphan drugs meeting in europe now so um, yeah it's it definitely is one that stands out in the market Excellent, thanks. And certainly, we've had many good discussions here. Some great networking going on. What are some of the What are some of the successes of this meeting? What are you particularly pleased about? Um, I think really the the continued growth of the cell and gene therapy side of the event. Uh, this is something that a couple of years ago was maybe a, a one hour discussion in one afternoon. Um, it's now, you know, been sort of two full days of content in that area. The room's been full for most of these discussions, and now you know that's going to be something that that you know looks to, to sort of grow. Really, the number of meetings that have been taking place, people are, you know, getting uh, lots and lots of meetings when we're helping them arrange them. People are always keen to meet. And, you know, the, the exhibition has been really busy with people sort of speaking a lot at the booths. So it's been something that's that's been really strong this year, probably even more so in the last than in the last few years. OK, excellent. So what, what does that mean that we have in store for 2019? More of the same or...? Yeah, I mean, we, we always look to sort of include different areas. So next year, as I mentioned, things like cell and gene therapy continuing to grow, and that's going to have um, a, almost an event sort of alongside the meeting where it's going to have um, sort of a couple of tracks on cell and gene therapy and be able to sort of really get to some different areas there. Things like advanced therapies could come into the event more so and precision medicine. Um, and certainly in terms of the, the size of the event, we've, you know, we, we're growing by about a quarter or so every year. So it's something we're going to have, you know, even more people attending next year, but still keeping the same balance of, you know, of um, sort of pharma and industry, patient groups of, you know, different sort of service providers as well. So it's, it's yeah, continued growth of the event. And that will help certainly with the, uh, the you know, the meetings that are sort of coming together and the partnerships that are being built. Excellent. Sounds like you've deserved your bonus this year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thanks a lot, Sophie. That's it for this week. Next week, in the second part of the series... Sophie Schmitz will be interviewing Diane Kleinemans, advisor to the Belgian federal government, discussing the origins and future of the Beniluxa initiative. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast from iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and do share your thoughts in the comment section. Thank you for listening. See you next week.